0: We were probably the first civilian household in the whole Soviet Union to have a KGB-issued caller ID. Uh, Just a few months earlier, we had walked into our living room as our mom hung up the phone in tears. Uh, We wouldn't find out for another seven years, uh, when we were comfortably living in America, uh, what those phone calls were about. Calls seemed to coincide with our dad's monthly business trips to Moscow, and coincidentally, they happened to stop right uh, when the foreign-looking device in our living room, the caller ID, was installed. So by this time, our dad was already being invited by various uh, pedagogical researchers, uh, ministers in Moscow, think tanks, conferences, to share his work Um, in creating innovation in education and only 25 years earlier at the age of 29 there is no way he could have known or imagined that he would be so respected by leaders in education reform Um, simply because he at that point hadn't even finished his high school education He, he had already been a teacher and He started to realize that there was going to be a limit as to what he could accomplish without an education as an educator uh, because he was primarily teaching, uh, as we said in the previous episode, vocational classes. And he wanted to go beyond that. He wanted to teach history. That's one of the subjects that he was interested in. And so he realized, okay, you know what? I I actually need to finish high school probably (laughs) for this. And from from what we told you in our previous episode, and if you had not listened to How to Do What You Love in a Communist Country Part 1, you should check it out. Uh, But you'll already know that even in his 20s, he exhibited pretty strong organizational quality. So he knew he had more potential at the age of 29 than to teach vocational subjects. He knew he could do more. And so for him, it wasn't enough to just continue teaching that for the rest of his life. He wanted more. So he sort of bit the bullet and decided to do something that most people his age, especially in Soviet Union, where everything was pretty hierarchical, uh, he he decided to swallow his pride and go back to high school. Uh, And he did it part-time. He took night school classes because he already had... He had one son. He had another one on the way. He had a job that was very demanding, so he could only really take high school classes at the the nighttime. Hmm. Yeah, and that was one of his approaches of getting educated was actually getting an education, but uh, he also took advantage of the fact that he was uh, teaching students every single day. He decided to start experimenting right away on different things that he would learn uh, as he was going along. And so in real life, in the actual work that he did, he would start adjusting his approach to education. And again, most people back then did not think in those terms. You know, effectively, the Department of Education, the ministry would tell you exactly how uh, a school should operate and exactly how a classroom should work. And people did what they were told. It was the easy way out. But that never made sense for our dad. Call it an entrepreneurial gene, call it boredom, and he just wanted to be excited and do something that was interesting to him. Uh, he took that initiative when others didn't. So at this point, he he was 32. So actually, he was already the age that we are right now, when he was just finishing his high school education. And he got good grades, he took it very seriously, he wasn't going to waste his time going back to high school, if he was going to sort of just try to slide by without, without trying to do well. Uh, so he graduated with, with top marks. I remember him telling us uh, when we were kids that he would have to come home from, uh, from going to school in the evening and stay up studying until 2, 3 in the morning if he had to and get up at 7 the next day and go back to, to work only to go back to school again. So he had to take it seriously because it was taking a lot of his time uh, to do this. And once he graduated, uh, sort of his guess as to what he would be allowed to do by other administrators in the school that he taught was correct. He was he, they started taking him more seriously. Uh, they started giving him the ability to to teach other subjects. He loved history. and in fact, a couple of years later, he ended up going to college uh, to a pedagogical university, which which is, which just means a university for teachers. Um, to to study history, he wanted to become an expert. He wanted to learn world history, Russian history, ancient history. He learned all of that stuff, and subsequently, he was able to teach all of those subjects. And we actually, in uh, in research for this episode, we spoke to one of our older brothers, Vitaly, who um, who was much older than us, and this all happened bef- well before we were born. And you know, he was telling us how a normal teacher's uh, let's say, work hours or at least teaching hours for the week were 18 hours in in Belarus. And my dad doubled and sometimes tripled those hours. So outside of his administrative work that he had to do, because teachers also had to do administrative work, not just teach, he basically had the schedule of two or three teachers, uh, partly because he wanted more responsibility. He loved work. He was, admittedly, he even told us in his life that he was a workaholic and we witnessed it but also partly because he was just really excited about it. He wanted to teach. He wanted to share his expertise with kids. He did what he loved in a communist country. Uh, And so he was taking on a huge workload for the courses. Of course, he would have to create the curriculum, uh, work on the lesson plans for all these classes, whether it's history, world history, civics, government courses, whatever it was. Uh, But he loved it. And he didn't care um, at the expense of, uh, you know, sometimes even leisure and his family and then things like that. Uh, but hey, we all turned out okay, right, Sergey? At least I did. Can't yeah, speak I mean, for you. We, we know that he, because uh, he spent so much time working, oftentimes that's time that he couldn't spend at home. So, I mean, yeah. entrepreneurs oftentimes tell you that there are sacrifices you'll have to make. Now, there's more than one way to be an entrepreneur, but for our dad, it meant putting in the hours and sometimes not being at home. And he continued to be a workaholic once we moved to America, which contributed to his success here, which we'll talk about in in the third uh, series of of these episodes. But uh, at this point, he basically took on a huge workload and uh, he was getting known slowly but surely as someone that took initiative, which stood out a lot back then, uh, amongst the population. And so Babruisk, Babruisk the, the small town that we grew up in, the town where he was making making his moves, if you will, had 30 schools. And our dad actually happened to work as a teacher for one of the only Jewish principals, uh, a man by the last name of Altshuler. And this Jewish principal actually also uh, did some work with the and was part of the Department of uh, Education in the town. And so... When the opportunity came uh, for that principal of the school where my dad was a teacher to bring on a new assistant principal, it was a no-brainer. Uh, he gave the recommendation to the Department of Education, and my dad got the role. And, yes, he was the second Jewish employee now. It was, uh, they were ruffling some feathers oh, in the okay, KGB people, already. People started to take notice. They, yeah. There were actual – I don't know if you know this, but there were actual quotas for how many Jewish – principles there could be how many jewish teachers there could be pretty much any role in that especially if it had to do with the government or government mandated type of role which many many roles were obviously in a communist country there was limits to how many jewish people you could have in those roles so it was already outside the norm and people started to pay attention but I i want to also flag that part of the reason why why our dad was given the role of vice principal is because he was no longer being seen as just a teacher he was seen as an organizer he was seen as somebody that was willing to experiment but he mentioned that he would take things that he learned from classes and try to experiment uh, with his own students to see essentially what worked better what made information stick and for those of you that are that are trying to figure out you know what what is it that I love doing like what is a passion for me? Take that as a sign. If Are you willing to try new things when no one is telling you, your boss isn't telling you what to do? Are you willing to experiment? Do you just get excited by trying new ideas? That's probably a good indication that you might have an interest or a passion for that topic. And don't just assume, even if you have a lot of experience in a particular area, that you know everything. Uh, You know, I try to emulate my dad as well. Uh, Next week, I'm starting to teach uh, an entrepreneurship program for a bunch of advanced high school students. And this week, I was in teacher training, uh, learning from other experienced teachers on new pedagogical methodologies that I wasn't aware of. And I'm actually going to be adjusting my lesson plans real time because of that. And that's exactly what our father was doing as well. He would learn things in the pedagogical institute. He would test out methodologies. And if he thought they were effective and they worked, he would implement them. And so, at the same time that he now had a post as an assistant principal, uh, he continued his work with camps. He loved kids. In the summer, obviously, when school's not a session, he had a little bit more freedom. And so he worked with camps. Pionierski Lageri, pioneer camps. They're, well, they're, they're, they had a communist tint to them. <laughs> there's Yes, the pioneer camp is a, a very communist-sounding thing. And it, and it really was. And what we actually learned, we, we left uh, Belarus before and actually when we left, the Soviet Union already had collapsed. But all of our older brothers participated in these camps because essentially in the summer, uh, much like here, parents send their kids to camp because, you know, they don't want them to be home all day doing nothing. Uh, that's wow. what parents would do. They would send their kids to these pioneer camps, and then and then teachers themselves oftentimes would go work at these camps to make a little extra money. Yeah, and so he, he actually continued doing this work through his 20s and into his 30s. And uh, at this point, he was well known in the city for, again, being an organizer. And somehow, you know, we tried to get this story straight, but there are some holes, but somehow he negotiated with a tire plant to be a sponsor Uh, For a new camp that he wanted to build out. Now, uh, why the tire plant? Well, a lot of cities back then, uh, and even in America, you know, there were a lot of industrial cities. Well, in Belarus, uh, each city kind of had a staple uh, means of production that they focused on. And tires was one of those things that Babruisk, Belarus, was known for. So people that worked in the tire plant actually got a lot of funding from the government. Yes. Uh, So he, I think we mentioned in our last episode that he was a camp counselor from age 17, so it was nothing new to him. Uh, And so by the time he was in his 30s, he actually was running the whole camp. Uh, He loved it. He did it every single summer, every year. And so, but people, most of the time, they wouldn't do something like that, like go trying to negotiate with the tire plant in town to sponsor the camp. I mean, you kind of just do the bare minimum because in communist society, you're almost disincentivized to do more because it's going against the norms that the the sort of head, the central authority sets. If you go against the norm, you might uh, sort of be looked down upon and you might uh, essentially rise slower. But my dad thought that was backwards, and so he actually wanted to do new things. So what did he negotiate with him? Well, so. He had another great idea, right? Uh, he had a problem with the fact that in all of these camps, basically, uh, housing was set up the same exact way. Uh, all the kids and f- and uh, counselors uh, would essentially sleep in a massive tent with a bunch of beds, like 20 or 30 people, right? Yeah, at least 20 or 30 people. And so that didn't make sense, and it kind of took away from the experience. And so he got sponsorship, essentially, to build out actual... Five by five mini houses. So kind of like mini cabins uh, that would uh, house up to five kids in each cabin. And all of a sudden, you know, within a year, uh, he had the most uh, popular camp in the city because the housing was a lot more exciting. Students got to build different types of uh, relationships um, and have a better experience uh, and and just do more uh, with these resources that they had yeah and and so this is just adding so you can imagine he finished high he finished high school he's 32 uh, through his 30s he continues teaching different subject because he actually a few years later went back and and uh, finished his college education um, and he's just taking on more and more organizing more and more things when other people take vacation he goes to work in those summer camps and and tries new ideas and to be to be fair it to him, and I remember him telling us this too, it didn't really feel like work. He loved doing it. So, part of, I mean, I think that's the definition of a workaholic. And should we, we should all be so lucky to find something we're so passionate about um, and actually are happy to do. But the principal he was working with and that nominated him as a vice principal and other people in town were starting to see that, um, that he was just going to be somebody that's a hard worker and he could create something from nothing. So, uh, when there was an opportu- a rare opportunity uh, for a new school that was being built, albeit in one of the worst neighborhoods in Babruisk, our town. Uh, he was one of the people that decided to jump on that opportunity to try to see if they would name him as the principal of that school. And by that time, he had enough relationships where there were others that were able to vouch for his work. Now, as a Jew... He he had to be better than everybody else, usually two, three times better and harder working than everybody else. So it wasn't just as easy as, okay, put your name in a box and maybe we'll we'll choose you as a principal. He actually went to meeting after meeting at the central um, education ministry called Granlo, uh, where he had to pitch. Other people didn't really have to do that. The merit of their previous work would be enough, but he had to actually pitch why he should be the one that was chosen. Yeah. And uh, he did get that post. And again, at this point, he had champions, uh, people that were supporting him. And, and this was years in the making. This was not overnight. Years in the making of proving himself locally to the community, to the leaders in the government. And he did get that opportunity. And he said um, even uh, to his own surprise, he did not think that they would pick a, a Jew to, 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 to lead another school. Again, they were above quota. And so he's pitching his ideas. And uh, right away, he started getting more involved than any other principal would in this scenario. So when he got selected for the school, literally the only thing that had been built at this point was the foundation. And immediately he got together with the architects of the school and he changed a bunch of the planning for the school to basically organize the rooms differently, to, to create different areas for the students, like a gym, uh, media centers, things like that, and and basically in a way that made sense to him. Well, you know, he, he saw this as a unique opportunity because it was building a new school, so that means that you could have the plans be whatever you want. Other people would just take existing blueprints and you know actually most buildings in belarus and there's actually a funny film where a guy goes from uh accidentally gets on a plane and goes from one uh uh, area in moscow to the same cross streets in saint petersburg and he accidentally goes into an apartment because it looks exactly the same as his apartment building in moscow so most buildings looked exactly the same but my dad saw this as an opportunity to actually do something different and if you recall from the last episode where we talked about some of the vocational topics that he taught he knew how to read blueprints he knew how to sketch that was one of the topics that he taught so it wasn't just that he was working with the architect he literally had blueprints laid out at his apartment right. where he would edit those blueprints bring them back to the architect and say hey build it this way and then once they were building he was there watching the the bricklayers the stone layers put the you know put the stones together and he would he actually helped if he had to i mean he literally took it into his own hands and in a communist country where again, most people would do the bare minimum, uh, any help would be welcome. So he could insert himself in whatever part of the process that he wanted. And so he continued these meetings with the Department of Education. And one of the things he wanted to immediately make clear is that uh, the way that schools are administered was backwards. A lot of times teachers were responsible for a lot of administrative operational work. Like, for example, office manager would have here, right, where essentially you're you're managing uh, the day to day of how the Uh, space operates as well. That didn't make sense. As an, an educator, in his mind, should be focused on one thing and one thing only, improving the experience for the student. And so he decided that there needs to be a different set of people that are responsible for the sort of operational logistics side of managing a school. And that, of course, would involve additional funding. And again, he started going to more and more meetings with the Department of Education, and uh, because at this point he had some influence and, and a lot of support, uh, and people knew that the there's a decent chance that if you to take a chance on our father, uh, good things would come out of it, he was able to appropriate more funds for his school. And... By the time we were six years old, so this must have been, I guess, 1991, and the school started in 1985. And, it's, and actually, in '82, he was selected to be the principal. It took several years, obviously, to actually build the whole took thing. A couple out. Years, yeah, it took a couple years to build. Um, so the school was operational for about five, six years. We were six years old. And by that time, this school was actually winning pretty much every math and science and other academic competition in the country because he implemented completely different ways of studying. So, for example, if a student uh, really was not naturally good at Russian language, but she loved math, he would let her take the most advanced math classes and even double up on math and take an easier Russian class. As a result, this student... Uh, not only was way more advanced than other students in her town um, in that particular subject, but she actually loved what she was studying. She loved going to school every single day. And so it became one of the top schools for one. That was one of the reasons, essentially. Another reason was he actually gave control to uh, in, the, in the hands of the educators. So if as a teacher, I decided that a class should operate in a different way or the Uh, contents of the course should progress in a different way, you wouldn't have to go to the Department of Education to ask to adjust the curriculum. At this point, uh, he was given the freedom to do these things as well. So the students were getting a better experience. Also, uh, the school was uh, sort of iterating on itself. So our father, every day almost, would have meetings with the faculty and administration to hear their feedback on how they thought their classes were progressing and the kids' education was progressing as well. It was an open forum that did not exist in any other school in all of Soviet Union, let alone the small city of 200,000 to 50 people uh, 2, 250,000 people of Babersk. and so because of that he was able to get the most elite educators uh, in Belarus to come to school because they were given more freedom and of course because of the higher funding he was able to pay them a little bit more as well. But that autonomy went a long way. And for the students, again, he uh, found creative ways to reappropriate budgets from other schools that didn't use all their budgets to build more and more cool stuff and resources for the kids. Like they were the first school in the Soviet Union to have a computer lab in the 80s, mind you. Uh, They were one of the first schools to have a cinema and a media room and an AV. Now they're called AV Club in America, but back over there was essentially called a, a cinema room. Uh, with a, a full uh, sort of camera uh, setup, uh, the first school to have basically every instrument available for all the different music classes and theater classes that were being taught. So these children uh, had much better experience in the school than their peers and that kid that kids were that were going to schools down the street. And we were fortunately two of the beneficiaries, and we, in fact. Uh, <laughs> We When we were in school, like, so we went to, to my dad's school, and we were in Belarus for the first two grades, for first and second grade, and I remember we had to sit, like, we had to be pretty much the most well-behaved kids in the school, because... Uh, we were the example. We were the principal's sons. And so we had to maintain the best grades. We had to be the most well-behaved. Or else we uh, ourselves were worried we would get in trouble. I mean, we didn't want to make our dad look bad, but we were just scared we would get in trouble. No, we weren't perfect. Uh, I remember one time when uh, this girl, who I kind of had a crush on, stole my backpack and ran into the girls' room with it, thinking that I wouldn't follow. Well, you don't mess with the Revs and Twins. Of course, I followed her immediately into the girls' room. Uh, Where I uh, experienced for the first time how it is uh, that women go to the bathroom, (laughs) Um, which was interesting. And of course, immediately after, um, uh, my teacher, who was a woman, Irina Alegovna, basically got me in trouble with my own dad. (laughs) (laughs) We were sent to the principal's office where, luckily, my dad uh, gave us a talking to. He, he was not the kind of person who would just kind of sweep it under the rug. He right. disciplined us. I mean, he, he, us. he took it seriously that we can't just be his kids and then treated favorably. That That's not something he would ever let slide. Right, right. But, um, you know, that girl never messed with me again. Yeah, maybe she was scared. I don't know. But other girls um, in the future did. And, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Back to our dad. Uh, so he was essentially now running an experimental school, uh, a school unlike any other. And slowly... Uh, You know, this is before the internet, um, so things like this would get noticed. And so the media took notice. And uh, they started writing up about him uh, in the national news. And when the national news started writing up about him, it went international to other countries in the Soviet bloc. Uh, And eventually, these ideas started to spread even further. So, in the beginning, uh, delegates from other countries all over the Soviet Union and Russia uh, would, ass- would fly over to visit my dad. Um, there were different summits that were being held, but essentially interview him, talk to him, and learn about his experimental program. Again, this was not being done anywhere else. And we even remember when uh, dad was telling us how the Americans were coming. Uh, several times uh, researchers and educational leaders from the United States in the 80s and early 90s uh, would visit Belarus of all places, uh, to to learn about my dad's program. And funny enough, um, another example of his entrepreneurial tendencies is he would go again to the to the government um, central authority in our hometown. And when they would see that he has all these delegates from all over the world coming to our town, he would use that as a way to get funds to pave the roads in the in the neighborhood where his school was. So essentially. That neighborhood that was one of the worst neighborhoods in Babruisk was becoming one of the best. And it wasn't just things like the paved roads. He actually had – so one of the innovations he had in his school and one of the things he pitched back then to the Ministry of Education uh, was that he wasn't just going to have a school. He was going to improve the community. And the way he did that uh, was a couple ways. So first of all, he actually had staff. That if kids had trouble at home, or if they were being raised by a single mother or their grandparents who didn't have any resources, he would have staff that acted essentially as social workers that would go to those homes and help those families. They would help with employment opportunities uh, for those families. They actually he would actually have kids ha- uh, host competitions. For which group of kids could clean um, sort of the uh, the neighborhoods that were adjacent to each other, and that's how he would get motivated kids to clean the neighborhood essentially, just by hosting some sort of competition with a prize. So he always had great ideas, and that's why that neighborhood ended up becoming one of the best in the city. Yeah, beyond that, he would build out other resources like a daycare center for busy parents, uh, a cafe, which would then employ. Uh, people in the community that didn't have a job and needed some extra cash. He even had some kind of nursing home, if I recall, for for the elderly as well um, and resources for them. And so clearly he was doing a lot for the community. At this point, uh, the Department of Education in Moscow and the ministry took notice as well. And uh, they wanted to learn about my dad's experimental system. And they said, you know what? Why don't you get a dissertation? Why don't you start working with our researchers, get sponsored by another PhD, and start uh, working on your own? And so that's when he started flying to Moscow almost every single month for all these different meetings with these researchers, think tanks, and the like that we mentioned at the beginning of the story to essentially tell a story. At the same time as the press took notice, uh, they actually shot a documentary. About my dad's school system. And so so he's getting all this notoriety. Uh, and you can imagine the same communists that were incredibly anti-Semitic years before and were trying to impend on his opportunities were trying to now bribe him to get their children into his schools. Uh, into his school, I should say. And he knew, of course, that he couldn't take bribes. First of all, he was against that. Then secondly, again, as a Jew, you take a bribe, someone is going to hold it over your head at some point. Everybody, pretty much, you should know that everyone in a communist society, bribery was very, very normal. A lot of people did it. It was still illegal, but it was pretty much the norm and something he refused to do. And so there started to be a lot of pressure. For example, uh, each school, every five years, they'd get a financial audit. Well, my dad had one every single year. Uh, And uh, basically, as with anyone that attains any level of success, there became naysayers. So, As I mentioned, uh, he had a documentary made about him, and the premiere for this documentary was uh, shown in in the capital, in Minsk. And so uh, my mom and dad went down there, and uh, basically in this premiere there were, again, opponents and proponents of a system, researchers, ministers of different departments, people that worked in various government institutions that had something to do with the Department of Education, tons of journalists, and of course, the National Belarusian TV was present with cameras to essentially see people's reactions after the screening. So what was supposed to be an exciting moment for our father ended up being an incredibly stressful one. Right after the completion of the uh, of the documentary screening and the cameras were rolling for the Belarusian national TV, seeing people's reactions, uh, he started basically seeing a lot of his opposition come to life. Uh, at one point, this woman said, "Well, you're experimenting on real people, as if that." is uh, some kind of terrible thing to do right to experiment uh, uh, live on 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 students. She made him sound like he was exper- like doing human lab rat kind of experiments right. when all he was doing was essentially trying to improve the way that they learned. And uh, our mom, uh, of course, was in the audience, and our mom as well worked uh, in education. So at this point, because we were already born, uh, she was teaching English at a different school. But before that, she was an assistant principal at a school, and she even at one point audited my dad. That was one of the sort of functions that she was charged with uh, when he was an assistant principal at another school. And so here she was years later, uh, came to a screening, and when that woman got up and said that our dad was experimenting on people, that was sort of the last straw for him. Now, mind you, my mom was intimately familiar with our dad's uh, sort of educational reform ideas and experimental program. As a matter of fact, she effectively edited his whole dissertation for him. Uh, she was a Russian language expert as well as an English language expert. Uh, and so naturally, my dad sought help from her um And in in helping with editing work But also as he came up with different ideas He would always run them by my mom Because she was such an experienced educator as well Because she had already been a leader In the education system And they would kind of iterate on his ideas together uh, And make sure that his ideas were sound And would pass the muster in different debates he'd have with researchers And so she got up Without announcing who she was She said, I'm an English teacher in Babruisk And she started defending my father With the cameras rolling uh, and uh, she made probably one of the most passionate speeches of her life, uh, basically saying how innovation was incredibly important. And by doing nothing, there would be stagnation and the students would suffer and that you needed innovation to progress uh, in in, the, in this society. And for, for Belarusian schools to be competitive with the rest of the world. Exactly. Belarus is a small country. And they cared about this. And funny enough, I was talking to my mom uh, before recording this episode, and she was telling. She told me that a few weeks ago, somebody reached out to her uh, that's still in, in in Belarus, and the video of her uh, of her defending my dad was on TV as part of some other documentary that they happened to see. <laughs> right now, in 2018, still being televised, and so uh, you know, even though she gave a passionate speech and other. Proponents uh, got up to defend my dad. At this point, sort of uh, the negative spell was cast and more and more pressure followed. Uh, and uh, the, a lot of the conservatives in the country were against changes in the school system and even more so against a Jewish guy trying to make changes. Who is he to make changes in our, in our society, in our education society, something that affects every single student? And so that, that takes us back to the, the threatening phone calls, uh, the caller ID that we mentioned at right. the beginning of the episode. So, you know, one day when my dad went on his monthly trip uh, to Moscow, she got a phone call from an anonymous male voice. And the guy said, get out. Get out of this country now. If you don't, don't worry, you live, but we'll kill your husband and then we'll torture your children in front of you leaving you alive to watch well our, our mother was a very is a very strong woman um, and she's not somebody that was easily intimidated but this absolutely got to her when it comes to her kids she would do absolutely anything and, you know, shortly after, uh, our dad actually had double doors installed in our apartment um, so that people couldn't just break in. But people actually, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to go outside and play with other kids, obviously. Uh, at one point, we were left home alone uh, just because our mom had to run down the street for a quick errand and babysitters weren't really a thing in Belarus, uh, especially not for 15, 20 minutes. And we got a knock on the door and... Uh, and a man said, "Hey, is your mom or dad home? I'm the electrician." Now, this is something you typically know about. We were six years old, but we were savvy enough to say, "Oh, our, 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 our mom is sleeping." <laughs> uh, you know, we said our mom is sleeping, and uh, please come back later. And we ran to the bathroom and hid. We, uh, yeah, we hid until she came back home, and it, it seemed like hours. It was, it was, it was terrifying. terrifying. Maybe it was like minutes, half hour. Yeah. I don't know, but it was it was absolutely terrifying, and. You know that that was scary in and of itself, but I think one of the last straws was uh, the fact that you know one time my dad, and this is shortly after this, was walking home from from a long day at work, and I think it was about nine p.m. and he noticed that there was a car behind him, following a little bit too closely, and all of a sudden he turns around, and the car is jumping the curb, clearly trying to hit him. Luckily, he very quickly. Ran into a a neighboring uh, an apartment building right there, and he was able to avoid the car, uh, and they sped away. Um, So he was completely safe, but uh, that was, of course, a a jolt and a terrifying moment. And even though we got these threats, you know, my dad at this point is um, in his early fifties. He had he has a very successful career. Uh, the The nation's eyes are are on him and the reforms he's doing. He actually already had political aspirations at this point. And now he's getting all these threats, so you can imagine it's a very difficult decision. What, what do we do at this point? Is it worth it? And, and who, who was doing these threats was another question. I mean, uh, clearly there was a lot of opposition, but it came from sort of every single angle. Uh, now, there was one sort of correlation that couldn't be ignored. Uh, when we got that collar ID installed, uh, that sort of high-tech piece of technology that wasn't really around in, in any household, uh, magically... Whenever my dad would go on a trip, the phone calls wouldn't happen anymore. They stopped. And it was issued because at this point, you know, our dad had had enough. Um, you know, he had gone to the police. And at this point, he had gone to some officials that he knew in the KGB. And he pleaded for them to help him figure out where these phone calls were happening and who might be responsible for these threats. Now, that uh, caller ID was issued by the KGB. And really, the only people that knew that this would issued to us must have been somehow related uh, to these government organizations. And so it became pretty clear that uh, these threats were coming from the very top. Who they were ultimately executed by, nobody will really know, but they were initiated from the top. And so, you know, it's one thing to get your own life threatened. Uh, my mom set an ultimatum, you know, our kids are just not safe anymore. Uh, and our dad, of course, unfortunately, had to make the difficult decision to drop and abandon his life's work. So I, we remember this. Uh, we were eight years old, and our parents had made this decision. Uh, within a few weeks, we were at the um, embassy in Moscow, um, and it was, the, I think, one of the fastest processes of, of getting political asylum um, that that anybody that we knew had had it, it was essentially six months, and we were on a plane to America um, to land in Boston and so it was a decision that had to make that had to happen very quickly. Uh, we were the last ones out of our entire extended family to move to the United States. Of course, something that we're incredibly grateful that our parents uh, did the very difficult decision my my dad barely speaking English. Uh, and going to a new country where they didn't know the customs, didn't know anything. And so in the next episode, we're going to tell you about how my parents started compl- all over uh, with three kids and my grandparents. It was seven of us living in a, uh, in a two-bedroom apartment. And uh, my parents had to start all over. My dad, 54 years old. My mom, 44 years old, starting completely from scratch. So stay tuned until part three. Coming this, to America. Coming to America. The land of the free. Oh, and tomorrow is Independence Day, so this is very topical, um, that we're very proud uh, of our parents uh, for taking us to this country and all the opportunities it was able to afford us. So happy so When you happy hear this birthday. episode, it'll be actually today. So happy July 4th, happy everybody. Happy birthday, to America. Note. All right. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this story, please share it with at least one friend.